he told us to stop giving money to people whose houses had burned down from a wildfire because he was so rageful that people in the state of California didn't support him and that politically it wasn't a base for him. Yep, that's my president. People whose houses have burned down? Sorry, suckers, you voted the wrong way. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in sweltering Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's, AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe as well every day for you on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Bird and Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, swell if dizzy fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling episode of the Bradcast, which could change any minute, depending (laughs) on how things go today. Glad you are here. That's the way the day has gone today. And speaking of dizzy... Hi, Desi Doyen. Hello. A lot of people think your name is Dizzy, don't they? Apparently they do. Or Daisy. Or, or Debbie Daisy. sometimes. Debbie, yeah, yeah. But it is Desi or Desiree. Depending. Uh, so this is amazing. Uh, we're going to talk momentarily with the University of Kentucky's election law professor, Josh Douglas, about the roller coaster that we have been on when it comes to a dizzying number of election law challenges in recent weeks with lower courts expanding voting rights only to see those rulings overturned by the appellate courts and by the U.S. Supreme Court and about why all of this is going on this year. But hey, speaking of roller coasters, it seems to be a theme, even though I didn't know it uh, until just a few minutes ago, because as we were preparing to go to air, our lead story today suddenly took a turn, which I will get to in a moment. But two pieces of background for this story. Uh, One, we've talked about this before, uh, but many people do not realize which state in the union has more registered Republicans than any other. No, it is not Texas or Florida or Ohio or so-called deep red states like Utah or Kansas, 
which, by the way, turns out isn't that deep red after all, with a very competitive U.S. Senate race there this year with uh, the Democratic nominee, State Senator Barbara Bollier, running a very tight race with the Republican Congressman Roger Marshall. Uh, in hopes of filling the open seat in the U.S. Senate being vacated by the retiring Pat Roberts uh, in a state that actually elected a Democrat statewide as governor just two years ago in 2018. So, no, it is none of those states. Um, The state in the union with the most Republicans, the most Republicans who voted for Donald Trump, by the way, is actually... Yes, a so-called deep blue state. That would be the state of California. We've got more Republicans here in this state than in any other state. So when you hear this uh, story, uh, it, it will make clear to you that Donald Trump is not just looking out for his base, as so many people claim. Oh, he's just he's interested only in his base, his base voters. He's only wants to do things that help Republican voters. Many, you know, say that those are the only folks he cares about, but he does not even care about his own voters. He cares about only himself. If he cared about his own voters, he would help support this. It would be a no brainer. He would help support the state with more Republican voters in it than any other. But this is not about his voters. None of this is about his voters. Nothing he has done for the past four years is about his voters. It is about him. It is about Donald Trump. That is one piece of background. Two, by way of additional background, here in Los Angeles, where we are, uh, the average daily high temperature for this time of year in mid-October uh, any guess, Desi Doyen? No, I, I'd I know say you have somewhere in the 70s or something. Very good. I it's guess. About 75 degrees for this time of year. Uh, usually a lovely time of year. Uh, this year, however, uh, which meshes well with the story coming up, by the way, in your latest Green News report, I think, mm-hmm. uh, it has been far warmer. Not just this month, but all summer long, including every day over this past week in mid-October, including today when we are constantly topping 90 degrees every single day above 90 degrees over the past week. Not 75 degrees or even into the 80s, but into the 90s every single day in mid-October. So with those two pieces of information as your background... The Trump administration, according to the L.A. Times last night, rejected California's request for disaster relief funds aimed at cleaning up the damage from six major record recent fires across the state. The rejected request is for six major wildfires that scorched more than 1.8 million acres in land, destroyed thousands of structures last month, and has resulted in some 31 deaths so far this year, according to the New York Times. The requests would cover fires in both northern and southern California, including L.A. County's huge Bobcat fire that uh, turned the skies here what pale yellow orange for several yeah. days yeah uh, people a few saw weeks ago. the apocalyptic skies down here in southern california and northern california that were bright orange the bobcat fire san bernardino's uh el dorado fire the creek fire which uh, one of the largest of them that continues to burn right now in fresno and madero counties Still today, it is burning. The state is also asking for aid for San Diego County's Valley Fire, Mendocino County's uh, Oak Fire, 
Siskiyou County's Slater Fire. California saw record fires this year, fueled by several factors, including, yes, climate change. While Trump has repeatedly criticized California for its handling of fire policy, says the L.A. Times, with misleading claims about forest management and raking leaves while rejecting the role of rising temperatures as a factor. And we should note that scientists say that forest management is a component, but climate change is the most significant factor driving these bigger fires. And with that significant factor, more than 4 million acres have burned in total so far this year in 2020 alone and I think we still have another month or two left in fire season wildfire season if I'm not mistaken yep although it's actually year round now, now but it, technically yeah. sure yeah, but that 4 million acres that is double the state's previous record the fires this year have burned an area larger than the state of Connecticut here in California and the administration denied a request from Governor Gavin Newsom for a major presidential disaster declaration. That, according to uh, Brian Ferguson, he's the deputy director of crisis communication and media relations for the uh, California governor's office of emergency services. California will appeal the decision, Ferguson told the L.A. Times. Uh, last night, the state and its local governments count on FEMA every year to help recover up to 75 percent of their staffing costs for sending firefighters into other jurisdictions, including, yes, onto federal land, which Desi Doyen, they, uh, federal government oversees much more forest here in California, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, yes, than the, the state of California that's does. That's correct. The federal government owns two-thirds of forested lands in California. California owns only 3%. But other than that, uh, it's all California's fault for not taking care of Donald Trump's federal forests, I guess. And uh, yet the, the state and its various counties... Even though those are federal lands, the state and various counties send thousands of firefighters into those federal forests to help fight fires for weeks at a time. Now, Trump had uh, threatened to withhold federal dollars in aid before, including back in 2019, unless the state officials, quote, get their act together, which is unlikely, he said. A major disaster declaration allows for cost sharing for all of this damage, for cleanup, for rebuilding the state and the federal government's property here all across the state. It also activates federal programs led by FEMA. Now, Governor Gavin Newsom formally submitted a letter to the White House and to FEMA on September 28 asking for this declaration, citing the fact that five of the six largest fires in California's recorded history have all taken place this year. The biggest is the August Complex fire, which began August 16, and as of October 15, yes, it is still burning. It had burned just over 1 million acres through seven, seven northern California counties, and it is still today just 77% contained. Governor Newsom wrote in his letter saying uh, many of the counties impacted by these wildfires are still recovering from previous devastating wildfires and storms and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, adding Californians are exhausted. Well, boy, howdy, is he got that one right. 
Many residents lost homes and property that was uninsured. According to Newsom, as of September 28, almost 1,000 residences were destroyed by fires and 90 more were damaged, totaling an estimated $264 million to date. The New York Times reports that while the state did not include a specific dollar amount in its request to the president and to FEMA, it will take a while to figure out all of these costs. Newsom wrote that because of a recession induced by the coronavirus pandemic, California went from a projected $5.6 billion budget surplus to now a $54 billion projected deficit. Thanks to that pandemic, thanks to Donald Trump's, uh, you know, if he doesn't get his act together, isn't that what he said about California? So uh, California's economy is suffering in a way we have not seen since the 2009 Great Recession, said Gavin Newsom in his uh, in his request. Well, according to The New York Times today, Judd Deere, the White House spokesperson, said President Trump had already come to the state's assistance when his administration authorized increased funding for debris removal from the fires, as well as relief for the fires back in August. So there's no need to give any more money. Deere said the more recent and separate California submission was not supported by the relevant data that states must provide for approval, and the president concurred with the FEMA administrator's recommendation that there should be no more emergency disaster relief for the state of California. California officials immediately pushed back, saying the state meets the federal requirements for approval. They plan to appeal the decision. Last year, the president had threatened to cut off funding for wildfires unless California improved the management of its forest, tweeting, quote, billions of dollars are sent to the state of California for forest fires that with proper forest management would never happen. Unless they get their act together, I have ordered FEMA to send no more money. Trump's threat at the time alarmed both Democrats and Republicans in the state. Miles Taylor, a former senior Trump administration official who until very recently served as the chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security. DHS oversees FEMA. Miles Taylor used to work for uh, the DHS. He has now endorsed Joe Biden. He said in August in a video ad released by Republican voters against Trump that Trump's reluctance to aid California was overtly political. On a phone call with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, he told FEMA to cut off the money and to no longer give individual assistance to California. He told us to stop giving money to people whose houses had burned down from a wildfire because he was so rageful that people in the state of California didn't support him and that politically it wasn't a base for him. So, yeah, he doesn't care. Their house is burned down, but they're not his political base. In fact, as the New York Times notes, many of the largest fires in California over the past four years have ravaged areas that tend to vote Republican. Because, of course, they do. Because we have a lot of Republicans in this uh, in this state. So, yeah, as I said, while a lot of folks claim that Trump only cares about his own voters, no, he doesn't. He doesn't care about them. He cares about states that he thinks he can win for himself, not for his voters. He hates Republican voters just as much as he hates Democrats, just as much as he hates everybody, unless 
They happen to be uh, voters that he thinks will help him win a second term. So don't be fooled. He just told a whole bunch of his own voters in rejecting this application, voters who have lost their own homes, he just told them to go to hell. Too bad. Sorry, suckers. And yes, as we've pointed out here, and Desi has on the Green News Report, wildfire experts say that Trump's analysis that all of this is California's fault for not raking enough leaves and clearing deadwood with controlled burns, which, by the way, is a problem in our forests. But those problems are now made far worse by wildly increased heat and drought due to climate change. But Trump's analysis has a big problem because most of California's forests are on land owned by the federal government, not the state. And their maintenance falls under, yes, Donald Trump's responsibility, the responsibility of his administration. Managing wildfires has become an ongoing, now nearly year-round task for firefighters, for officials, for residents who live here. Since the beginning of the year, more than 8,500 wildfires have burned over more than 4 million acres in California. The threat of more fires this year continues to haunt the state, says the Times, New York Times, with record-breaking temperatures and and, uh, high winds this week, large parts of Northern California, which have large fires that are still burning, are once again now under red flag warnings in mid-October. And the state's largest utility has cut power now to more than 50,000 households in an effort to reduce the possibility that its equipment could ignite new fires. California has been smacked in the face by climate change said one scientist, and is likely to face increasing demands on its financial resources. Tom Corrigan, a researcher at the Scripps uh, Institution of Oceanography, told the New York Times last month we are seeing record fires year after year. It's a little early to say what the total impacts are going to be, but it wouldn't surprise me if the damages are over $20 billion this year. $20 billion. Over the past 50 years, except for the Last four years, wildfire averaged wildfires averaged about the same amount each year in direct damage, about one billion dollars per year adjusted for inflation. But in the three of the past four years, including this one, fires are on track now to cause damages in excess of ten billion dollars each year. I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's about a thousand percent of the previous annual average over the past 50 years. Corrigan said, we have seen an order of magnitude leap in damages in the last four years. Well, I guess we better get raking out here and we better get voting. Because Donald Trump and FEMA turned down the state of California. Well, guess what? Just in, just before airtime today, uh, after all of this, over the past 24 hours, after this outrage, after the White House saying, no, FEMA, FEMA decided that we shouldn't give you any money. Even though we, we we have the guy, the chief of staff from the Department of Homeland Security saying it was Donald Trump telling FEMA to not give any more money to California. Well, this just in, just before air, uh, Congressman Tom McClintock, 
Republican of California. I think he's where's Fresno is uh, McClintock. McClintock is Fresno. Yes. California's fourth congressional district in Northern California. That includes Yosemite National Park, several national forests. McClintock tweeted, Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader. House all, Minority Leader. Minor, thank you. Minority Leader, also from California, uh, has just informed me that the president has committed to reverse FEMA's decision to deny the request for a federal disaster declaration for the recent fires. The presidential disaster declaration is imminent and help is on the way. And sure enough, just before airtime, seconds before we went to air, pulling this from the New York Times, breaking President Trump reversed himself on Friday, approving a package of wildfire disaster relief for California after officials from his administration explained why the state should not receive the aid. Governor Gavin Newsom out here in California said uh, just now, just got off the phone with President Trump, who has approved our major disaster declaration request, grateful for his quick response. And remember, uh, earlier today, Judd Deere, the White House spokesman, said that the September support aid for the September fires, quote, was not supported by the relevant data that states must provide for approval. And the president concurred with the FEMA administrator's recommendation. I guess he doesn't concur anymore. I guess somebody actually bothered to tell him, hey, Mr. President, you know, there's a whole hell of a lot of Republicans who live in California who voted for you. In fact, more Republicans voted for you in California than any other state. And there's an election coming up in just over two weeks. Maybe this doesn't look so good. What a putz. Can I say that on the air? I think so. I think so. What a, a jackass. I mean, just incredible. So this disturbing news story turns out to be a good news story. But I it's guess. still disturbing because he yanked the aid away and now he's re-bestowing it like a benevolent ruler. So now he can say, I saved California. Yeah. Well, that's where we are. How many weeks until Election Day? Which is not uh, the election. That's the deadline for voting. So, hey, people, get busy. And speaking of changing opinions at the last second... You know, we have been reporting on a dizzying roller coaster of challenges to election laws in recent weeks in states all across the country where the lower federal courts decided repeatedly in favor of expanding voting rights, only to see those rulings overturned at the appellate and uh, U.S. Supreme Courts. Well, what the hell is going on here? And how much of this has to do with the GOP packing of our federal courts in recent years? I've got just the guy to ask. That guy is coming up next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, if it was a roller coaster of love, it wouldn't be quite as nauseating. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In recent weeks, 
and months on this program, we have been covering a lot of the legal trench warfare battles in states all across the country where the Trump campaign and the Republican Party have been waging all out war, usually in federal courts, but also in state courts where uh, they think, as in Texas, where every judge on the state Supreme Court is a Republican, where they think they can get favorable rulings on everything from blocking the use of mail-in drop boxes to the requirement for witness signatures on mail-in ballots, even though it puts many people living in quarantine in danger, to whether ballots that are postmarked by Election Day may be counted if they happen to show up after Election Day thanks to slowdowns in mail delivery under the new protocols put in place by major Trump and GOP donor-turned-postmaster general this year, Louis DeJoy, to whether state legislatures who passed bills to automatically send absentee ballots or even just absentee ballot request forms whether those state legislatures should be allowed to do so. All of these trench warfare voting laws have been underway in a roller coaster fashion for the past several weeks. In many, I would say most of these cases, Democrats and voting rights advocates challenging the restrictions in hopes of making voting easier and safer for everyone in this critical election year amid this pandemic worsened by Donald Trump's bungled handling of it. In most cases, the voting rights advocates have been successful defeating Trump and the Republicans in almost every case, in the lower federal courts at least. Many of those well-considered rulings in the lower courts in favor of voters, however, were later reversed by appeals courts or even by the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court, often on the basis that the lower court rulings just came too late, to uh, too close to the election itself to change the rules, which would cause chaos and confusion for voters and election officials. That's the so-called Purcell Principle, a manufactured doctrine which the Supreme Court has started, often selectively, applying to election cases that come before it. The court has cited Purcell even in cases where the lower courts found that thousands of voters might otherwise be disenfranchised unless some particular rule or another was changed. Well, too bad. The so-called Purcell principle takes primacy. And then there are other cases in which it wasn't a matter of Purcell, but a matter of the appellate courts deciding that the legislature has the right to create laws and restrictions for elections, even if they are bad laws and dangerous restrictions. And the courts have no business overruling a state legislature. Donald Trump's new Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, associating herself with her hero, the late disingenuous liar, as I detailed on this show a few days ago, Justice Antonin Scalia, said something similar when she cited Scalia to note. His judicial philosophy was straightforward. A judge must apply the law as it is written not as she wishes it were. Sometimes that approach meant reaching results that he did not like. But as he put it in one of his best known opinions, that is what it means to say that we have a government of laws and not of men. Courts have a vital responsibility to the rule of law, which is critical to a free society. 
But courts are not designed to solve every problem or right every wrong in our public life. The policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches, elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. Courts should not even try. It's not up to them to fix bad laws. It's merely up to them to enforce the rule of law, as she originally wrote in her opening remarks there that you heard her speaking, Amy Coney Barrett there. Never mind that when in 2013 uh, Justice Scalia voted to gut the Voting Rights Act, he specifically cited his reasons for doing so were tied to the fact that the U.S. Senate had voted 98 to 0 in favor of expanding the landmark law back in 20, uh, 2006 for another 25 years. A law enacted to enforce the Constitution's 15th Amendment ratified in 1870 to grant the right to vote to freed slaves, which specifically states in its second of two total sentences in that amendment, quote, the Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation, which they did passing it nearly unanimously just years before in both the House and Congress before the so-called constitutional conservative originalist Justice Scalia gutted that law, leading to many of the suppressive voting restrictions that voters are battling against today. Over the past two weeks alone, by way of just one example, we have seen Texas Governor Greg Abbott suddenly declare that only one drop-off location would be allowed for mail-in ballots in the Lone Star State in each of its counties. Whether it had a population of 4.7 million, like Houston's Harris County, or just over 100,000, like Rockwall County. A lower federal court overturned Abbott's restriction, finding it an impermissible burden on voters and on the right to vote. But the appellate federal court reversed that lower lower court judge on the basis that it's up to the governor granted powers by the legislature to make whatever voting laws that they want, essentially. And besides, it's too late before the election to change the governor's declaration, which was itself only recently declared and that chaos would result if his declaration was changed somehow. We have seen similar patterns all over the country. Very selective decisions, it often seems, by the appellate courts, as we've been reporting on this program a great deal over the past several weeks and months. Writing at CNN this week, University of Kentucky election law professor Joshua A. Douglas author of the book Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. He writes in an opinion piece, quote, a disturbing number of courts are refusing to protect the right to vote. Although some federal district courts have eased certain election laws to make it easier to vote during the pandemic, the Supreme Court and federal appellate courts have mostly reversed these rulings. The appellate courts are instead unduly deferring to state legislatures and election officials. So why exactly are they doing that? I don't know. Let's ask Josh Douglas. Oh, Professor, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me back. It has. I'm glad to have you here, brother. It has been very frustrating in uh, in recent weeks seeing these lengthy, well thought out lower court rulings, often written after lengthy hearings with all the parties and thorough review of the facts of the case. 
being quickly overturned by appellate courts and or the GOP's stolen Supreme Court, making it ultimately harder and or more dangerous for many voters to vote this year. I'm so glad you wrote about this at CNN this week because it has been driving me nuts. So my first question, Josh, what's going on here? Well, I think it's a number of things, Brad. I think it's in part some really terrible jurisprudence from the U.S. Supreme Court that dates back to 2008's decision in a case called Crawford versus Marion County about photo ID laws mm-hmm. in Indiana, where the court basically upheld or at least refused to invalidate Indiana's photo ID law by deferring to the state, saying the state has an interest in protecting election integrity, never mind that there was no evidence that there were any problems in the state involving election integrity. The court simply deferred. Um, And we've seen kind of that trend continue, Mm -hmm. where now the lower federal court, filled, by the way, by a lot of Trump appointees after Mitch McConnell refused to fill a lot of seats during the end of Obama's administration, Mm -hmm. uh, taking the deference, I think, to the next level. And really not questioning the state's motivation, the state's evidence or need for a particular law, and simply saying, we defer. And it is frustrating because, you know, the constitutional right to vote is supposed to be one of our most foundational, precious rights, Mm -hmm. and the courts are supposed to be a check on majorities, legislative majorities, that is, that try to rig the system, rig the rules of the game to keep themselves in power. That's that's the whole point of judicial review in these constitutional cases involving voting rights. And the courts are refusing to do that right now. And it all seems very selectively done. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to quote Amy Coney Barrett there, because she was saying, hey, even bad laws, it's up to the elected officials. They have to face the voters. We judges, we don't have to. We have lifetime appointments. We need to leave it up to the elected officials, even if it's a bad law. And then, you know, you had Justice Scalia back in 2013 got the Voting Rights Act by saying the reason he had to vote that way was because the elected officials officials voted 98 to 0 in the U.S. Senate to extend the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. I mean, it seems like they pick and choose when they wish to be constitutional originalists and and when they don't. And in these voting rights cases of late, it seems like the legislature uh, gets all the say in the matter, no matter how bad the laws are, and the Constitution seems to be completely ignored oftentimes in these cases. Is that my imagination, or do you see it that way as well? Well, it was really strange for Scalia to make that statement, and that that was in the oral argument and not Mm -hmm. in the opinion itself. Mm -hmm. But it, it was very strange for him to say, you know, we have to be more skeptical of... Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act released its reauthorization because the Senate was 98-0, because that maybe suggests that, you know, no one is going to vote against something called the Voting Rights Act. And a lot of people pointed out, actually, that Justice Scalia himself was um, nominated and and approved unanimously in the Senate, (laughs) which I thought was sort of a funny observation from people uh, after Scalia made that decision. But, you know, what we see now uh, in the court's You know, not only the U.S. Supreme Court, but the lower federal appellate courts have very much shifted rightward, Mm -hmm. and they're deferring in all cases. And what's interesting is that there's actually been some deference to the states in cases where the Trump campaign has sued to invalidate laws that have made it easier to vote. So, for example, in Pennsylvania, uh, there are some changes made that 
the Trump administration sued about, saying it's going to introduce fraud. And the district court said, we're going to defer to the legislature's decision to ease voter access. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I think is happening is that there's deference to the legislatures either way, but actually there shouldn't be. If you think about it, if you think of the constitutional right to vote as the most fundamental right, then there should be deference to legislatures when they make it easier to vote but not deference to legislatures when they make it harder to vote. I mean, shouldn't there be kind of a one-way ratchet in favor of eased voter access unless we, you know, unless there's a proven problem with some sort of methodology? Mm -hmm. So uh, we're, we're seeing undue deference on both sides, but both sides are not equal. It's a false equivalence to say, well, the courts should always be deferential to the states. No, the courts should be deferential to the fundamental right to vote and should look at each case to determine whether... The plaintiffs are seeking an expansion of that right to let more people vote or are seeking a restriction of that right. And, and what we're seeing here is that a lot of states are refusing to act to respond to the pandemic. And of course, voting is harder for many more people in this time period. And when those states refuse to act, it should be incumbent upon the course to protect the fundamental right to vote. Just by way of a few examples that you cite in your piece at uh, CNN.com, uh, Josh Douglas, you say we have seen this undue deference to state laws from the U.S. Supreme Court, which rejected a lower court ruling that removed the witness requirement for absentee ballots in South Carolina, something that we saw just happened uh, from a state court as well in Alaska. Actually, the state Supreme Court upheld that. It's too dangerous uh, for people who are in quarantine to have to go out and, and find someone to witness their ballot. And that was the lower courts agreed uh, in a similar case, the federal court in South Carolina. But Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote that a state legislature's decision either to keep or to make changes to election rules to address COVID-19 ordinarily should not be subject to second guessing by an unelected federal judiciary, which lacks the background, competence and expertise to assess public health uh, and is not accountable to the people. I, I, I mean... If 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 this is not the job of the courts, of the federal courts, to look after constitutional rights, what's the point of the federal courts at all? Yeah, isn't that crazy, right? The, the, the state, you know, luckily, this is South Carolina, eased the absentee balloting rule to let people vote via absentee ballot because of COVID-19, but still required people to get a signature, a witness signature. So if you live alone and you have reasons not to go out, you still have to find someone to witness your absentee ballot, right? That surely makes it harder to vote, and that's why the lower courts struck it down. And then the U.S. Supreme Court reverses on kind of two theories. One, as you mentioned in the intro, the Purcell principle that we don't want to introduce chaos. We, do you know what introduced chaos? The U.S. Supreme Court reversing the lower court because you had you had ballots going out. My in-laws, in fact, uh, showed me the, the, they they sent me a picture of the instructions that came along with their absentee ballot. They live in South Carolina, and it said it's not clear right now whether a witness signature is required. So we think it's good practice to provide it as the court sorts this out. That's literally what their ballot instructions. Good said. Lord, yeah. And talk about being confusing, and that's because the U.S. Supreme Court then reversed and said yes, we do need a witness requirement. And the other thing that's sort of crazy is one might say, okay, well, we should let the legislature decide the rules because they're at least accountable to the people. But when it comes to election laws, the legislatures might be passing rules to keep themselves in power, right, mm -hmm. to make it harder for people to vote so they're less accountable 
to the people. And that's why we have constitutional rights. And that's why we have courts that are supposed to protect those constitutional rights. It's no answer, just like it's no answer in the partisan gerrymandering context, to say, well, if you don't like what the legislature is doing, vote the bums out. The whole point of these structural electoral laws that many legislatures pass are to make it harder to vote the bums out. Right. And so that's where courts should be stepping in to protect constitutional rights. But unfortunately, in that South Carolina case, the U.S. Supreme Court failed to do so, and that sent a signal to lower federal courts, the, the appellate courts as well, that they should be more deferential to the states. And, and let me give you one more example that, mm-hmm. I, that just really frustrated me, which was a district court in Georgia. Oh, yeah. I know something that, that uh, you care a lot about yep. with respect to these electronic voting machines. Mm-hmm. And the court there said, you know, this, this implementation of these new ballot marking devices is going to deprive some people of the right to vote because of unreliability. Mm-hmm. But we have to take our signal from the 11th Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court that we have to defer to the legislature. Now, you know, I'm not an expert on, on the electronic voting machines mm-hmm. like you are in terms of, of the constitutionality, but it really struck me that the court said people are going to lose their right, right to vote, but we are powerless to do anything about it because the higher courts have told us we have to defer to the legislature. That just can't be right. No, and it's U.S. Judge, uh, District Judge Amy uh, Totenberg wrote this 150-page ruling where it looked, she went through about how terrible these systems are, how they're unverifiable, unsecurable, and therefore, like the previous touchscreens that she banned in Georgia, therefore unconstitutional, but she says that you get to the very end of the ruling and she says, that said, there's nothing I can do because it's so late in the game. It seems that the Supreme Court has sent a very clear message now to the federal courts and now to the uh, uh, district courts below them that this is how you are supposed to operate. Uh, facts be damned. And I guess in this case, uh, in all of these cases, really, voters be damned because they seem so far off the off the rails with these ideas that they have in their mind that really are not supported by the Constitution, which often says the opposite of what they're saying. That's exactly right. And this is why it's incumbent upon state courts to vigorously protect the right to vote. As you mentioned, the Alaska Supreme Court did. Mm -hmm. We had a great decision out of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that, as of now that we're talking right now, the U.S. Supreme Court is still deciding if it's going to review that case. Right, right. and, and that would be really dangerous if the U.S. Supreme Court steps in to basically say we can now oversee state court decisions under the state constitutions. Uh, you know, and I think that would be really dangerous if, if the U.S. Supreme Court does that. But it's in really even more so incumbent upon state Supreme Courts to protect the right to vote under state constitutions because the federal courts are unwilling to do so. How much of this, uh, Josh, has to do with an actual judicial philosophy and how much is uh, simply partisan reactionaryism by right-wing judges who have been packed onto the courts by the Federalist Society and all of the other right-wing dark money groups as cited by Senator Sheldon Whitehouse last Tuesday during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Look, I try to be really nonpartisan in my election law commentary because I think it's important to try to take as objective view of these issues as possible as an academic. That said, I can't deny that one party has the interest of making it harder to vote, and that party has been able to put its judges onto the court 
in huge numbers, and we're seeing the the results of that. I mean, you know, McConnell's strategy during the Obama Obama administration was to block every possible judge Mm -hmm. that Obama would put up, especially once the Republicans controlled the Senate, including Merrick Garland at the U.S. Supreme Court, but also Mm -hmm. 140-some-odd federal judges on the appellate and district courts. And then once Trump came in office, pushed as many of those judges and fill as many of those seats as possible, and we're seeing the, the results of that. Now, again, I'm, I'm not going to say that I think necessarily these judges are acting out of partisan motivation. I'm sure most, if not all of them, are using their judicial philosophy and trying to follow what they think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to say. But we can't deny that there is a partisan valence to the decisions regardless of whether the judges themselves are being motivated by partisanship or just their own you know, conservative judicial philosophy. Finally, Josh, is there a way to fix this? Uh, could, for example, uh, and this is beyond uh, expanding the court, as I hope that Democrats do, if the, and not just the Supreme Court, but the f- lower federal courts as well, I hope that Democrats do if they win the White House and the Senate. But beyond that, for example, could the U.S. Congress pass a bill you know, that says, the right to vote and to have that vote counted as cast in a federal election must take precedence over state legislative preferences or, or some such. I mean, what can be done uh, aside simply, you know, changing the balance of the courts at this point? Well, you know, I think Congress does have the constitutional authority to regulate elections in a lot of ways under Article One, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, mm-hmm. often referred to the um, as the Elections Clause which gives states kind of the the first right in regulating elections, but then Congress says Congress may alter or or amend those regulations. Mm -hmm. Of course, my concern is that if you have a very conservative Supreme Court, the court could strike something down that Congress does, just like it did in the Shelby County case. Uh, So I think, you know, we have to think on a longer-term strategy about enshrining the right to vote as a textual matter in the U.S. Constitution. Because Mm -hmm. if these judges are textualists, then having explicit language conferring the right to vote, which the U.S. Constitution does not currently have, is a much stronger legal argument. And, you know, I know that Senators Durbin and and Warren have introduced a right-to-vote amendment in the U.S. Senate. Mm -hmm. So if the Senate does get Democratic control and it stays in the House, uh, I think there should be a stronger push for a constitutional right-to-vote in the U.S. Constitution. You know, the other thing I'll say, as I mentioned before, is the power of state constitutions almost every single state constitution has an explicit grant of the right to vote in its language, and mm-hmm. so we need to, to encourage state courts to uphold that right. And then the final thing I'll say is, uh, although I hate to sort of rely on the voters, you know, massive voter turnout can help to mitigate some of the negative effects of some of these rulings. And, you know, one thing I want to point out is that I think and I hope we're going to have record turnout this year and you might hear some people say, well, that means there's no voter suppression, right? You know, because we had such great turnout. Where's mm-hmm. the suppression? And, of course, that's a false equivalent. Yep. We might have massive voter turnout in spite of the voter suppression because voters mm-hmm. had to jump through unnecessary hoops to exercise their fundamental right to vote. And maybe it would have been even higher. So, yep. you know, I think, unfortunately, it is incumbent upon the voters in the short term to jump over those hurdles. Uh, And then in the longer term, I think we need to fight for a constitutional right to vote. 
Yeah, although even if it is in the uh, uh, the Constitution, that's not an airtight way of keeping the Supreme Court away from it because, you know, the 15th Amendment, which uh, is what the Voting Rights Act was meant to enforce, actually says the Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation which was then gutted by Scalia and the rest of the court. So even that's not perfect. When it comes to the voters, though, uh, I don't hate relying on them. I think that's all we have to rely on at this point. So we're all uh, crossing our fingers that they get busy and uh, do the job this year because they're our last firewall this election, as I see it. Professor Joshua A. Douglas teaches and researches election law, voting rights, and constitutional law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. His latest book is Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, which uh, he and I have uh, debated over the last uh, year or two. Uh, There's a lot of great stuff in there, a lot of stuff that uh, I disagree with, which is why it's always great to have Josh on to uh, hammer these things out. Josh Douglas. Uh, can be found at joshuaadouglas.com. I'll link to his CNN piece this week. You can also find him on the Twitters at Joshua A. Douglas. Hey, Josh, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast, my friend. It's always great to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, a quick break, and we will come back with, oh, I see what we have here, Green News Report that combines both the climate change we were talking about in our A block yep. and the Amy Coney Barrett we were talking about just there in, in this B block. Yeah, neat how that works, eh? Yeah, that's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. It's almost like we do it on purpose, <laughs> that we take all of these pieces and pull them together into one great crescendo at the end of the show. Mm, no, it's just an accident. <laughs> just a lucky accident in our latest Green News Report. Do you believe that human beings cause global warming? Well, Senator Blumenthal, I don't think I am competent to opine on what causes global warming or not. How Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation to the Supreme Court threatens U.S. climate policy. Plus, September 2020 was the hottest September ever recorded on the planet. I noticed. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I don't think that my views on global warming or climate change are relevant to the job I would do as a judge. Yeah, it probably won't come up. This is your... Green News Report. I'm gonna 
Okay, Desi Doyen, Amy Coney Barrett may not have noticed, but I did. September was the hottest September ever recorded. <laughs> yes, indeed. September 2020 was the hottest September ever recorded globally since record keeping began in 1880. She must have some pretty good air condition where she lives. The new data comes from both NASA and NOAA. The 10 warmest Septembers have all occurred since 2005. The seven warmest Septembers have all occurred in the last seven years. All-time record heat was observed on every continent, spurring wildfires and one of the most active Atlantic hurricane seasons in history. Too bad they keep Amy Coney Barrett in a hermetically sealed vault in the basement at Notre Dame. Not a single region saw record cold. Arctic sea ice also plummeted to its second lowest level ever documented. 2020 remains on track to be one of the top two hottest years on record. I'm sure it's just a fluke. So keep that new global heat record in mind as you hear Donald Trump's third nominee for the stolen U.S. Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, in her Senate confirmation hearing, giving the strong impression that she is a climate science denier. Here's what Barrett told Louisiana's Republican Senator John Kennedy on Tuesday. I'm certainly not a scientist. I'm not saying you are. I mean, I've read things about climate change. I would not say that I have firm views on it. Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut on Wednesday specifically asked about the scientific consensus that humans are responsible. Do you believe that human beings cause global warming? Well, Senator Blumenthal, I don't think I am competent to opine on what causes global warming or not. So I... Well, we all have views on it. I'm asking for your opinion. I don't think that my views on global warming or climate change are relevant to the job I would do as a judge. California Senator and Democratic Vice Presidential nominee Kamala Harris got Barrett to acknowledge the science that smoking causes cancer, but Barrett pushed back on the established science of climate change. I will not express a view on a matter of public policy, especially one that is politically controversial because that's inconsistent with the judicial role, as I have explained. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Barrett. And and you've made your point clear that you believe it's a debatable point. But it's not a matter of policy. Right. It's a matter of science. Right. That humans are the cause of man-made climate change is not up for debate. And if confirmed to a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court, the 48-year-old Barrett's views on science will absolutely be relevant. Barrett's prior writings and rulings indicate she favors deregulation over regulation and takes a very narrow view of federal agency regulatory authority. If confirmed, she would be involved in some of the most consequential, long-reaching cases that could determine the future of U.S. climate policy, or lack of it, for decades to come. Democratic Senator and climate hawk Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island on Tuesday did not ask Barrett questions, instead using his time to deconstruct how a network of unaccountable right-wing dark money groups have spent hundreds of millions of dollars in a coordinated decades-long effort to help Republicans Republicans take over the federal judiciary and ram through Barrett's installation to the Supreme Court less than three weeks before the crucial November election. A lot of this money, I'm convinced, is polluter money. The Coke industries is a polluter. The fossil fuel industry is a polluter. Who else would be putting buckets of money into this and wanting to hide who they are behind donors' trust or other schemes? And what if if you're a big polluter, what do you want? You want weak regulatory agencies. You want ones that you can box up 
and run over to Congress and get your friends to fix things for you in Congress. Over and over and over again, these decisions are targeted at regulatory agencies to weaken their independence and weaken their strength. And if you're a big polluter, a weak regulatory agency is your idea of a good day. Another good day for those polluters will be when Amy Coney Barrett is seated on the stolen U.S. Supreme Court. For much more about all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today because of them, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. I can never see what's right or what is wrong. It'll take too long to see. Amy, what you want to do? Oh, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. What Amy wants to do. Speaking of, the roller coaster today continues uh, just over the past few minutes. Breaking news. This after, again, lower federal courts decided that all persons must be counted in the census. You know, since the Constitution actually says that all persons in each state must be counted in the census. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court has said it has agreed to hear whether undocumented immigrants must be counted in the census or not, as the Trump administration has been arguing against counting them Despite the, you know, Constitutional Convention, when this thing was set up, uh, the 14th Amendment, this was debated, and the framers decided, yes, absolutely, all persons should be counted. Congress later agreed in 1929, that's what the Constitution says, and yet now we've got a potentially 6-3 to three court with Amy Barrett sitting on it, who will decide this question, and the fact that they've taken up this case suggests that they might overturn that lower federal court. Have I mentioned there's an election in two weeks and that people better get damn busy right now to make sure you know how you are going to vote to change this nightmare? If I haven't mentioned it for a few minutes, I've mentioned it again. Get busy. All right, we have to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Joshua A. Douglas of the University of Kentucky and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Everything that we do here is thanks only to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and uh, I stay on your public airwaves uh, five days a week. Thank you. Bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here again next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Mm-hmm.